0: Good morning travelers, pre-med students and undergraduates, welcome to Doctors In. This is where medical experiences are shared, study strategies are examined and life lessons with a sprinkle of advice and habits are served. This podcast features proactive physicians who have taken strides toward global, public, gender and mental health initiatives to ultimately improve healthcare around the world. Join me, MD Hawk and my co-host Natalia Krotovska as we deconstruct the journey of medicine with our guests. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today, we are joined by Dr. Alex Schubert, and he is currently a second-year neurosurgery resident at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital. He did his undergrad at Johns Hopkins and his medical school at UC San Diego. Dr. Schubert is a highly proactive neurosurgeon who has a multifaceted array of experiences. He has over 30 publications in scientific research, making him a competitive applicant for top residency programs.
1: But that's not all. Dr. Schupper is an athlete who engages in hyperactive sports such as snowboarding, baseball, and CrossFit. Dr. Schupper also spends his time hiking and cooking. Um, Not in that exact order. But as a surgical resident, Dr. Schupper is interested in using fluorescence-guided surgery uh, and in fact is currently promoting a virtual reality program called Surgical Theaters that prepares surgeons with live modeling of the surgery they're about to partake. Dr. Schroeper also has a podcast called Res Life, which you can find out more about on his podcast through his Instagram at neurofitnessmd. So let's cut to the chase and welcome Dr. Schuper to the Doctors Inn.
2: Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate the introduction. Hopefully I can live up to it.
0: <laughs> no, I think that was very uh, simple and well put introduction. Uh, very humble as well. So, And we just want to get straight to it. We can imagine how busy you are as a resident, especially during this pandemic. So how is life going in the heart of New York City?
2: It's definitely not the New York City that people signed up for, I'll tell you that. We can't really enjoy many of the things that New York City has to offer, whether it's shows or sports or just as simple as meeting up in groups to go out to eat. Or explore the the sites of the city. But I guess one of the advantages during this time is as a, a resident, as a doctor in general, you're able to really focus on healthcare. And you know, it's one of the things that our country really needs the most. So we're really able to stay focused and we have more motivation than other than ever, knowing that the public in general is depending on us to help us get through this pandemic.
1: Um, is New York home for you? Where are you originally from? Not,
2: not exactly. So I'm originally from Philadelphia, but my family is from New York, so it's a very familiar territory to me.
1: Nice, nice.
0: Yeah, so just to go into the questions, um, I imagine you like to work with your hands considering, you know, it's one of the criteria for surgery, any type of surgery. Are there any traits to a neurosurgeon? Would you say that stand out to you? Uh, Kind of like, were you well equipped with enhanced dexterity and precision ever since you were little? Or was this like something that you had to work on and was a gradual learning curve?
2: I think that's a great question. And I almost comedically get that question pretty often that everyone has this this notoriety that as neurosurgeons, we're great with our hands and all this. And while it is true that you do need a certain aptitude to be a surgeon, and not just a neurosurgeon, but any interventionalist in general, you need to be pretty dexterous. You can definitely train your hands. And I think that's a big misconception that someone says, oh, you know, I have a little bit of a resting tremor. Well, let me let you guys in on a little secret. We all have resting tremors. It's just physiological. Um, you know, any, anyone who knows anything about medicine will tell you that. But I think more than just your innate abilities is your dedication and your ability to work hard and just repetitions. I've always been someone who's been very dexterous. I've enjoyed using my hands, building things, et cetera. Father's actually a surgeon. And since then uh, I've really used it as motivation to want to use my hands and to build things and to make a difference, whether it's taking out a tumor or fixing someone's spine I've just always wanted to use my hands. And I've always, that's because I've always been very concrete sequential in that if there's a problem, I'm very simple-minded. And I like to go in, find the solution and fix it. And that's just how we are as surgeons. We're very simple-minded people and that we go in for a specific objective and we fix it and we're not done until the problem's solved. And that really lends well to kind of my personality and just how I attack life in general. But in terms of personalities and traits of being a neurosurgeon, I think work ethic is, is everything while it helps to have some innate aptitude in terms of intelligence and you know, physical abilities, I think the work ethic will trump all of that, that I would take someone who is willing to work hard and put in the time over someone with innate abilities any day of the week.
1: Yeah, that was very well put. It's
0: interesting you say that. Most simple-minded human beings are doing one of the most complex surgical procedures, which is really interesting.
2: <laughs> no, it's, that's a great point. It's a result of really how surgery works in that you can't go in ambivalent in surgery. You have to be very directed in terms of your goal. It's it's almost like going to war. You have to have a strategic plan. You have to know that if things don't go exactly as planned, what your option B, C, and D are, how you're going to get out of it, and how you're going to fix the problem. You always have to have the end in sight that you have to be very directly minded, or you're never going to get surgery done. You're never going to do it efficiently, and you're not going to do well by your patients. So it, it seems ironic, but when you, when you start seeing surgery and doing surgeries, you'll realize that that's really the tactic you need to be effective in the operating room.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you say that's kind of just like building confidence on your your skill set, right? A little bit. 100%. Do, and yeah. It's,
2: yeah, it's not different than anything else in life, whether you're staying for the MCAT or you're trying to do well in your next organic chemistry test, it's all just a difference of repetitions. If you're studying for organic chemistry, the more practice questions you're going to do, the more confident you're going to feel on testing, the better you'll probably do. Same with the MCAT, right? I'll take the person who takes 100 practice tests over the person who takes 10 practice tests any day. Because they've just seen more questions, they have more experience, they know the different question asking strategies and what the questions are looking for. It's no different with surgery, saying for the neurosurgery boards, it's all the same. It's just repetition, right? And that, and that just comes down to work ethic. You have to be willing to put the time in and put the work in to get the results.
1: Yeah, that's definitely all true. Um, so, what got you into neurosurgery? I mean, it's not something we kind of briefly discussed this before our interview, but neurosurgery, it's not something that undergrads can shadow too much or, yeah, I guess like what took you onto the route of wanting to become a neurosurgeon? I know you mentioned your father is a surgeon, but what about surgery specifically inspired you?
2: That's a great question. And obviously during the residency interview process, you're routinely asked this question. I think at every hospital I went to, I had to answer this question in one way or another. I think I I pay a lot of homage to my father in terms of having me interested in being an interventionalist in a surgeon just in general and working with my hands and fixing things from a surgical perspective rather than a medical perspective, right? Because when you decide you want to become a doctor, that's really the first branch point. And do you want to be a physician or a surgeon, right? And then you decide on other branch points, but that's kind of the big one. Um, and that really separates out your your career track. And once, once I knew I, I'd be much more interested in surgery than medicine, you know, the next, obviously, the decision point would be what type of surgery do you want to be or what type of surgeon do you want to be? And while a lot a lot of people end up deciding between neurology and neurosurgery because we're both dealing with the same organ, the nervous system, I was the opposite. I knew I wanted to be in surgery and it was a matter of what type of surgeon I wanted to be. And toward the end of high school, a dear friend of mine lost a loved one for uh, to glioblastoma and this really moved me in just how quickly he succumbed to the disease and how we really didn't understand very much about glioblastoma, as well as the treatment and how to prolong life. In um, that summer, I then went on, I was living in Philadelphia and did research as a high school student at the University of Pennsylvania in the neurosurgery department. And I learned more about GBM, about different brain tumors, about different areas of neuroscience and it really sparked a fire for me. I really was interested in the brain and the nervous system and just really how much we didn't know about the nervous system. And then the next year I was deciding on colleges to go to, um, I ended up playing baseball in college and was being recruited at different places. And then when I found Johns Hopkins, I quickly realized that it was, if not the top one, of the top neuroscience undergraduate programs in the country. And some of the professors that I would have the opportunity to learn with were Nobel laureates, had these huge, very prestigious labs. I learn about the results and it was pretty amazing that I was being lectured by people who literally wrote the textbook and that was an incredible experience for me so just to be in that type of environment with with Titans in the field uh, was was really motivating for an 18 19 year old kid it was pretty incredible to have these experiences and then so combining my my passion and my interest for surgery with this newly found interest in the neurosciences it was a really natural pairing it was very easy to marry the two uh, between neuroscience and surgery in neurosurgery and while i tried to spend the earlier years in medical school actually trying to convince myself not to become a neurosurgeon i wanted to open myself up and and not close myself off too much and, and find other specialties it really came back to you know what i'm really interested in is neurosurgery for example i spent a long time pursuing orthopedics because i was a college athlete it was pretty natural i was hurt in college had my own issues with orthopedic injuries and uh, what I realized is the part of orthop- orthopedic surgery I enjoyed the most was was complex spine surgery and deformity surgery. And then I, I also gave ENT a look, otolaryngology, and realized that the parts of ENT I liked were skull-based surgery. And so I took a step back and realized, you know, who are you fooling? The parts of these specialties you like the most are the parts that overlap with neurosurgery. So uh, it was really destiny and, and I, I couldn't see it any other way. And now two years later, I wouldn't change it for the world. It's the most gratifying specialty, and I can't imagine myself doing anything else.
0: That's so nice to hear, honestly. just It just shows how passionate you are um, on what you're doing. And also, just to go back, you mentioned something right now, and you talked about how in high school you came across this complexity of a case with glioblastoma. So... My question is, can the complexity of certain cases be overwhelming when you're performing on or operating, or is there kind of like a reward system that is there in place for the challenge?
2: It's a great question. It's one of the challenges we often are faced with in neurosurgery, because even though we strive for perfection every time, we know that not every patient is going to have a good outcome. Glioblastoma is a great example of this. We know that even if we have a gross total resection, meaning that we resect 100% of the tumor that we see on an mri there are still tumor cells left in the brain that's just the nature of glioblastoma it's an infiltrative disease we're never going to remove 100 percent of the cells which is why eventually glioblastoma is going to be I, I truly believe it's going to be a non-surgical disease it's going to be a disease cured by immunotherapy by different types of drugs and uh, um, from the clinical trials we're currently pursuing and that's just by by the nature of the disease again so it, it can be challenging we know that even, for example, with glioblastoma, that even if we do a perfect job, we're not going to cure the patient. And that can be really challenging as surgeons. Because again, going back to our mindset that we're very concrete sequential people and we go for a specific reason, it's a little disheartening looking back, thinking that regardless of how good of a surgery I do, I'm not going to cure this patient. And as surgeons, that's a very unnatural and very sobering feeling for us because that's why we do surgery, right? We do surgery to cure people and to fix people in general. So it's, it's really tough as neurosurgeons having to deal with that sometimes, but I would say it's not the majority of cases. In most cases, whether it's someone with lumbar disc disease or cervical myelopathy, brain trauma, different types of traumatic brain injury, we can often fix the problem. And so it's definitely not the majority of cases, but I think that's one of the challenges that we deal with as surgeons that I think is unique to neurosurgery. For example, in orthopedics, if someone breaks a bone, you fix the bone you reduce the fracture, and that's it, right? And that's a perfect surgery. But we're often faced with bigger challenges than that in neurosurgery.
1: Right. Um, does that kind of contribute to potential burnout for surgeons, or especially neurosurgeons? And how would you mitigate those feelings?
2: Definitely, it's it's really challenging. I don't know. I wouldn't say that necessarily precipitates burnout. In that we know going into a certain surgery and based on what type of tumor we believe it is really what the expected outcome is. So I think as long as it meets expectations, that doesn't necessarily lead to burnout. I think what leads to burnout more is a lack of gratification just in general, that if you're working long hours, you don't feel either appreciated or you feel that the work you're doing isn't going to where, where you want it to be, or You're being deprived of your hobbies or your your necessities, like food, sleep, et cetera. I think these are all things that precipitate burnout. And I think just in general, that's why in medicine, we have a high burnout rate, because you're working long, strenuous hours. It's a very stressful work environment. And you often don't get to do some of the basic necessities that you enjoy, spending time with loved ones, sleeping, eating when you want to, et cetera. So I think these are more causes you know, again, we we know what we signed up for. We know that if we're going to operate on a patient with glioblastoma, we know the expected trajectory, we know the life expectancy, etc. So I don't think necessarily as much of a disease state thing to burn out as much as kind of environmental factors, but it definitely contributes, right? Having patients with bad outcomes, I definitely go home at the end of the day and I'm not feeling as up as I would if, you know, I treat, treat someone with you know, more of a, dis- a benign disease process. And it really make a difference. It-, it can weigh on you for sure.
1: Yeah. I think you also mentioned in one of your interviews or read in a bio somewhere that you can fit a workout in between your cases in the operating room. <laughs> Honestly, when I saw that, I imagined you're either a super athlete or you're insanely good with time management. So how does a neurosurgeon fit everything into the same 24 hours? Exactly.
2: It's a great question. And I get routinely asked that um, pretty often. Because everyone thinks we have like 27 hours a day. And, and the truth is we have the same 24 hours that, that you do. You know, we put our pants on the same way that you do, one fit at a time. Um, oh, man. We're not jumping in some like that. ruins months. my, so wow. It, it's all about I know. The, oh, my God. <laughs> the secret's out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it's, it's all, it all comes down to time management. And honestly, these are skills that we developed years and years ago. This is nothing new not like I didn't know how to organize my day until I got into residency, right? This is a large part of what led me to becoming a nurse retreat resident. And it all started from high school, from college. I was always very organized. I owe a lot of that to my parents. My parents always kept my brothers and I on the straight and narrow. And you know, we weren't able to go practice unless our homework was done or our grades were where they needed to be. And so they really instilled in us kind of that organized lifestyle and, and getting everything done and prioritizing everything and how important that all is and i think that just kind of snowballed into college and med school and allowed us to have the opportunities to do what we wanted to do for example in college i was never the one to just spend all saturday playing video games for like 10 hours a day i knew that that would just be a waste of time and while i enjoyed time with my friends and participating in hobbies i knew that i had to study because between playing baseball and doing my other extracurriculars i knew that if i wanted to get into med school at a competitive college i had to work harder Most people, and that's just the result of it, right? Same thing in med school. I knew if I went to get into nurse surgery, I had to work harder than most of my classmates and um, had to put in the time when they weren't willing to, right? And and it's no different, you know, regardless of what stage you're at, whether you're a pre med, med student, resident, it's all the same. So, for me, um, being able to work out and maintain my fitness is really important to me. So, even on a busy day, if I know I'm going to be operating for 12, 14 plus hours a day, if I want to get a workout in that day, it may come to, you know, as soon as I roll my patient back to the ICU, finding 15 minutes to get in a quick CrossFit workout before I get the next, next patient ready to go into the operating room. Uh, it's sometimes what it takes, you know, it, it's all about prioritizing and, and just staying organized. And so I, I have very little tolerance for excuses. When someone tells me they don't have time to do things. They don't have time to do X, Y, or Z, I Just kind of shake my head at them. Cause it's like, if I, if I have time, you have time, you know,
0: we would love to know where you do these exercises, uh, during the, during your timeouts. It's like, okay, like where can I find a space in the hospital to work out for a little while?
2: That, that's a secret. Some of my co-residents <laughs> asked me that. And my, my cookie car answer is that the, the world is your gym. <laughs> so there's, there's nowhere you can not get a workout and true believer in that you don't need to, to swipe yourself into a, a workout room or anything like that to get a workout in. So, you know, if you have a flat floor or you know wherever you'll need dumbbells or anything you can always get a workout in.
1: Yeah. So, within those 24 hours that we all get, you also do a lot of research. So, you are re- uh, very research savvy and and that's being humble considering you have 30 or more publications, which is unimaginable considering the time frame we're working with. Um so, how did you so you mentioned previously that you started with research since high school. Uh, And then you can you continued it in undergrad. And of course, until now. Um, But what got you into research in high school? And what kind of pushed you more into academia?
0: Yeah, like other than the glioblastoma case, was there just a a innate curiosity?
2: Absolutely. It it all stems back to curiosity. I've always just been someone wanting to pursue a lifelong of learning and and you're never done learning doesn't matter if you're a high school student or a seasoned neurosurgeon everyone's learning every day and the day you stop learning is the day you're falling behind It's just been from a peak curiosity, which is what got me interested in this field in the first place, is how much we don't know about the brain and the nervous system. And so the best way to learn is to do research and to to understand what's been done and what hasn't been done and how you're going to contribute to the field. And that led me to my interest in academia. I didn't just want to be a technician. Most neurosurgeons are actually in private practice and they do predominantly spine cases, some cranial as well, but really they're just technicians. They're just doing surgery which is fine and it can be an extremely gratifying career to just do surgery. But for me, that, that was never really the only appeal. I also wanted to be an innovator in the field and I wanted to make my own contributions to the field as well. And it's like you said, it's been about 10 years now since I've been doing research and it just stemmed from curiosity, wanting to learn more, wanting to learn what's out there and, and what we don't know. And neurosurgery, like in many other fields, there's so much still, still to be learned in every day participating in research and trying to answer new questions that we don't understand about our field. You know, it started with glioblastoma, but stems to fluorescent-guided surgery, and I do a lot of different, different spine projects, and it has just stemmed in all different types of directions. I've done a lot of traumatic brain injury research, just, and it all, it all came from, from self-serving curiosity and just not understanding why we treat certain patients a certain way or why patients have certain trajectories and wanting to answer these questions. And the best way to do that is just by engaging in research.
1: Yeah. Do you have any advice for undergrads in particular or med school students who are looking to get involved in research? I know it's not something that everyone has an interest in necessarily, but yeah, just tips and advice on research, getting involved.
2: Definitely. It's really tough from your guys' stage, uh, especially when you don't have prior research right a lot of labs want to see that you have prior research experience and it's like a catch-22 right because you want to do research but they require you to have research but how are you going to get that without having prior research experience so my my biggest tip for for pre-meds for undergrads is just to be persistent when i first wanted to engage in research when i got to hopkins as a freshman in college i think i emailed probably about 30 different labs and and PIs before I even got one answer back. And I emailed everyone from Ben Carson to Jalo to all these super famous guys who I had no business even being in their inbox. And you just have to be persistent. You can't get down if someone doesn't give you an answer or if someone says, no, that's okay, right? They probably weren't a good fit for you anyway if they weren't willing to give you the time. Because what you guys need at your stage is you need a mentor and you need someone who's gonna show you how to do research. And you're not gonna learn by doing this super high level basic science project that you don't understand the, the nitty-gritty of. You have, to, you, have to, you, know, you have to crawl before you walk and walk before you run. So you have to find a project that's gonna meet you on your level. And the only way to do that is just to be persistent and just to reach out to as many people as you can. And eventually you'll get, you'll get a bite. Um, but you can't get disheartened if you don't hear yes on your first, your fifth, or your 30th answer. Cause it, it might not happen. But just being persistent, you'll eventually get somewhere and, and you'll, able, you'll be able to get that first opportunity. And then every opportunity after that will be easier and easier. And now almost every day I have people asking me to do research with them. So it's just that's how it snowballs. But it has to start from somewhere. And so I was that undergrad kid not too long ago who had you know, no, no labs interested in doing research in me with me. So you'll, you'll get there. You just have to be persistent.
0: Thank you for that. Um, Do you have any advice for undergraduates who are medical students who are hoping to be published? Because, like, right now, Natalia is doing research at Icon School of Medicine. I'm doing research at NYU School of Medicine. And we see that, like, bench lab research, it takes a while for us to be published, especially with the time frame. But it seems when you're doing clinical research, it's more fast-paced. Is that the case, would you say?
2: Definitely. Definitely. It obviously is very dependent upon the lab that you're in, but in general, bench research, basic science research, translational research is often a little bit slower than clinical research. The reason is just because it takes longer to conduct basic science experiments compared to clinical research. You already have the data. It's usually just a matter of collecting the data and analyzing it, which can take hours to days to weeks. So it's a very quick turnaround. Usually, the longest part of clinical research is just writing the paper, which usually doesn't take very long. So again, it comes with a caveat, because basic science research will often be at a higher level of impact. It'll often have more significance in terms of being able to be published in a higher impact journal. More people will read it, and it can potentially lead to bigger consequences down the line, bigger impacts. Clinical, main clinical studies, depending on what you're interested in, it may not be as meaningful but it may be easier in terms of having a faster turnaround to a publication. So I I think at least, you know, it depends what you're interested in. If you're interested in basic science, I would not say only do clinical research and vice versa, but if you're interested in doing basic science, but also, getting publications into your belt, I would try to mix it up in terms of getting involved in a few clinical projects, as well as still pursuing your interest in basic science. But knowing that it's a lot harder to publish in basic science.
0: Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Yeah, since we're on the subject of academia, what would be your best and most effective study strategy that kind of helps you throughout undergrad, medical school, and even during residency? Because I imagine you still have to keep up with your research, with your with new findings, et cetera.
2: Absolutely. I think it goes back to what we were speaking about earlier with organization. Everyone has a different study strategy and based upon what you're studying for, whether it's your pre-med classes or your MCAT or your... USMLE board exams or your nurse surgery boards—they're often different strategies for different exams, and everyone utilizes a different strategy differently. Some people like note cards, some people like listening to things. Everyone's a different type of learner, right? Some people are auditory learners, visual learners, etc. And I think just taking a step back from that is just staying organized and knowing what works for you. And you may not often know that as an, by the time you're an undergrad, it may take a few more years till you really figure out what study strategy works for you. But staying organized and time management skills, I think are really important. Not starting to study for a test the day before, putting in a little bit of time every single day, I think is always going to be more effective than cramming. So just understanding what study strategies work best for you and giving yourself the time in the organization to, to really put that study plan to use, I think will be effective.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's very important. Would you say that during your medical school years, did you really have your day-to-day, hour-to-hour kind of booked in advance in terms of what you're going to be studying and in terms of what chapters you'll be reviewing, etc.? Yeah,
2: as you guys will see when you become medical students, every day is a grind and you have a lot more free time in med school, especially during your preclinical years before you actually get to the hospital. So, It's really dependent upon staying organized. You cannot study for a whole day or you can study for eight hours every day. It's up to you. I think striking that balance is really important. You want to enjoy your life and participate in your hobbies. But having a few hours every single day to focus on studying is really important. And just staying organized is crucial in medical school because there's just so much to learn.
1: Yeah. How's the work-life balance for... I mean, maybe you're not the best person to ask this (laughs) Um, in regard to work-life balance for a neurosurgeon, but because it seems like you have it pretty structured. But in general, an overview, a recap of most neurosurgeons, how would you say the work-life balance is? Like, is it manageable? Is there a work-life balance?
2: Definitely. I mean, ever, everyone has a balance. It just depends how balanced is is work versus life. You know, some people are 90-10 are versus 70-30. So it, it depends on how you set your career up. Again, if you're more private practice versus academia, your times could be structured a little bit differently. For me, it's it's a constant balance and everyone deals with that. And i, I by no means perfected it at this point. I'm only two years in, hopefully a very long and prosperous career. So I'm still trying to figure out what works for me and what doesn't work for me. And and I fail sometimes, fail often at trying trying to manage that. You just have to you have to be very conscientious about how you spend your time and what's working and what's not. And you have to be willing to adjust things and make changes. And I've had to do that. And you know, if you're not getting enough studying done, something else has to give because again we all have the same 24 hours. So what I can change is how much time I have to spend in the operating room every day, spend you know, working with my patients and making sure I'm being a good doctor for my patients. But what I can change is, is the other time that I have. So how I'm going to organize that is really important. And how I'm going to do things that are good, both for my mental and emotional health, but also that are going to help in terms of just my life in general.
1: Yeah, that was very well said. And so just kind of moving away from academia and like Pre-med tips and just med tips into more of the clinical settings, I wanted to explore, quote from one of your interviews where you said the pandemic made us realize why we wanted to be in medicine. It was to be healers above all else. Do you mind just explaining and expanding on your experience during the pandemic as a resident?
2: Sure. I, I had a very unique experience being a New York City resident in the in the pandemic. Um, during March, I was working in Elmhurst and it was obviously a very trying time, very sobering. It was a really disheartening time and and frankly scary to go to work every day where for a few weeks we didn't have the PPE that we needed. We had, I stole an OR gown that I once used for an entire week on every single patient and just didn't have the proper attire. And it was, it was really scary to go work every day. And it's obviously not what you sign up for. You don't go into neurosurgery to treat ICU patients and manage ventilators and stuff like that. It's way beyond the scope of our practice. But I think it really brought us all back to to why we're doing what we're doing, and that you know before we're specialists, we're we're here to to treat people. And COVID really exploited that, and it made it, it really showed the importance of why we're doing what we're doing, and. when you take away the elective surgeries and all the things that we specialize in it's most important for us to just be healers for our patients right because that's why we went to medical school and that's why we said the Hippocratic oath before we became different types of doctors so i think it really brought us back to our roots as far as why we're doing what we're doing so it was a very sobering reminder obviously not how any of us wanted to be reminded but i think in retrospect it was very gratifying to realize that we're we're here for a reason, and and there's a lot of pride that comes with being in medicine.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking of the clinical setting, I can imagine the intensity in which you kind of have to perform. So to battle burnout, you obviously talked about how you have to keep things in perspective and really focus on time management. and, But also, you also said something in one of your Instagram posts and you said, I don't like taking myself too seriously. It might be as simple as wearing a simple, you know, Spider-Man scrub cap or sharing a laugh with a patient. So would you say um, you and your team have this fun-based or just lighthearted personality that can serve as a good coping mechanism to dealing with the high intensity?
2: definitely. I think that's a key to any specialty, but especially in a specialty like ours, where we often have to take things very seriously, whether we have bad outcomes or patients have very critical illnesses, it's very easy to become burnt out from that. And I think one of the ways to fight it is maintaining a sense of humor and not taking yourself too seriously, having fun in your work environment. And we get along great with our co-residents, with our physician assistants, nurses, attendings. And we're really a, a big extended family. And you have to enjoy where you work. It doesn't matter what you do, whether you work in a restaurant or you're in a hospital, you have to enjoy your work environment. You have to feel gratification about what you do every day. And for us, that can be challenging when we have bad outcomes, but um, it's, it, it's so important to just take pride in what you do and, and to keep that level of satisfaction.
0: I see. So everyone take notes. Uh, neurosurgical personalities are not also intimidating after all. Um, also, I wanted to ask how you got into CrossFit, because that seems to be a very big part of your life
2: been doing it for a while now. It started when I was at Hopkins. Um, we incorporated CrossFit workouts into our, our baseball team workouts. And since then, I just fell in love and realized it was the most efficient way to work out for a neurosurgeon who only has so much time. You can often get more in the 15-minute workout than you can in an hour in the gym. So for me, it was a great combination of working out efficiently and at the level of intensity that I wanted to work out at.
1: Yeah. So I guess we can just kind of wrap up our discussion um, for now. But before we end our discussion, I wanted to quickly ask about surgical theaters and your interest in fluorescence guided surgery. If you can just expand on the promising nature of using visual, visualizing technology in your surgeries or even pre-surgeries to prepare um, for what to expect.
2: Sure. So I'll start with surgical theater. Surgical theater is a It's actually used for a few things. It's not just used in pre-playing, it's used actually in the operating room as well. But we're often using it in the pre-playing stage to figure out where a tumor is and aneurysm is, et cetera, and what vital structures are around it. And it helps us plan our surgical approach. And that's so important, right? In in neurosurgery, again, it's like a war. You have to go in with a plan. You have to know exactly how you're going to attack and execute that plan. And surgical theory is a great technology that allows us to accomplish that and it uses the preoperative scans whether it's an mri or a ct scan and it allows us to really visualize what's going on in the pathology in ways that we previously couldn't it provides a 3d look at the different structures around where we're going to be operating it allows us to to figure out the, the safest a, a way to, to treat the pathology so that's really important. Um, they've been great partners with us at Mount Sinai. Um, we have a, we have a great experience using them, and we, we use them for cases every single week, and it's it's really great. It's great for teaching too, in terms of showing the relevant anatomy of the different cases. And from a resident's perspective, where I'm learning all this, um, you know, often for the first time, it's really helpful. So that's surgical theater, um, fluorescent guide surgery is totally different. It's essentially where we use fluorescent substances that will light up the target tissue, uh, often used in tumor tissue. So in in our institution, we use something called 5-ALA, which is 5-amyl acid. It's in the heme synthesis path, pathway. It's actually a, a precursor to protoporphyrin 9, which is in the heme synthesis pathway. And it's taken up by glioma cells, which are malignant brain tumor cells. And they fluoresce upon blue light and that's really helpful in terms of distinguishing the tumor tissue from the healthy brain because even though we often show these pictures where it's really easy to tell what's brain and what's tumor tissue in the operating room especially in some of the more infiltrative tumors it can be really hard to distinguish where that margin is where that border is between the tumor and the brain so using something like 5-LA can really help. When you turn on the blue light, you can see that the tumor is pink and the surrounding tissue is blue. And it, it, it really improves our ability to visualize the tumor and to safely take out the tumor and to not take out the surrounding brain because you know, obviously we don't wanna take out brain that isn't involved. And if we're operating in eloquent areas of the brain, meaning areas with very high price real estate, such as areas that control our ability to move, our ability to speak, our ability to see uh, these are areas that we want to be very careful of because the last thing we want is for the patient to wake up with the deficit we don't want our patients to wake up and not being able to see or not being able to talk this is something that we all fear as neurosurgeons so using fluorescence in the operating room to help delineate the difference between the tumor and the brain can be really useful so uh, my research mentor is dr constantias has been really great and uh, he's actually the, the leader in the United States for 5ALA. He's the one who brought it to our country. He's the one who actually got FDA approval in 2017 for the use. And he's one of the worldwide leaders in fluorescence guide surgery. And it, it's really a privilege to work at Sinai with him and to be one of, uh, to work in his lab and to be his, his uh, resident uh, research mentee. It's really a privilege. And we've had the opportunity to publish now a couple of papers on the topic. And we're still investigating new new topics with regard to 5 ALA use and fluorescent guide surgery. It's really cool, it's cutting edge. It's definitely going to become more broadly used in the next couple of years. I think it really improves the safety of performing tumor surgery.
0: Yeah, it sounds very promising, to say the least, and we're very excited. So, now, unfortunately, we're near the end of the podcast, and we would want to hear much more because you have such a vibrant personality. However, um, as per the title of the podcast, Doctors Inn, let's just go through a guided story as a closing remark. So, we'd like to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by Doctors Inn to rest for lunch. Before you leave, the innkeeper, which is us right here, ask you to share one quote or piece of advice that uh, we can frame on our wall. Uh, What would that piece of advice be? It can be something you live your life by.
2: Definitely. So I've given this quote before in a prior talk, and I think it's really important. It applies to anyone who has any interest, not just in medicine or neurosurgery, but the way I live my life is to find something that you're really passionate about and identify that, obsess over it, and then figure out how you're going to change it make a difference in the world because I think you can do that regardless of what your passions are and what your interests are. And finding that one thing that is really important to you and how you want to make a difference in the world is key. And that's what I'm trying to do. And hopefully I can do that in the field of neurosurgery and improving patient outcomes and having patients with neurological diseases improve. So That's what I will leave you guys with and then hopefully leave you a nice tip.
1: Yeah. And thank you so much for taking the time out for the Doctors In podcast. Uh, We know you're super busy at the moment being a resident and uh, we definitely really appreciate your time. It was an absolute pleasure.
2: Thank you guys for having me. This was a blast.
0: Thank you so much. All right. So a major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors In. All our show notes can be found on our website at www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Doctors and Podcasts on Instagram and YouTube to watch the animated videos for each of our episodes. We really try to make it informative and visually appealing. So yeah, just give it a try and uh, see you guys next time. Bye.